Can you imagine sitting in the pub chatting with your mates only to be interrupted by ads? Well, unfortunately, that does happen here at the Homebrew Pub because we're just trying to keep the lights on. However, if you would like to support us directly and get access to ad-free episodes of the Homebrew Pub, please head on over to our Patreon. You can find a link to that on our website, thehomebrewpub.com, and join our mug club. Again, our website, thehomebrewpub.com. I'll see you in the pub after the next couple of ads. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Homebrew Pub, the only pub in existence where every beer on tap is made by a homebrewer. And on this ethereal plane, the Homebrew Pub will turn into the guest brewer's perfect brew pub. So please come in, grab a stool, and grab a pint. This week, we welcome to the pub one of the most intrepid homebrewers I think that we could ever meet. We have Martin Keane of Homebrew Challenge. Hello, Martin. Intrepid. Intrepid. Okay. I like it. Hi, <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> the reason you're intrepid is you're famous for doing 99 beers in 99 weeks. I mean, if that's not intrepid, I don't know what is. Uh, it was poorly advised, I think is what I would call it. <laughs> I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. <laughs> um, so, welcome welcome to the Homebrew Pub. Thank you so much for swinging by. It is my pleasure to be here. Uh, I feel uh, like you know, you've had some illustrious guests up until this point. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for, you know, for bringing down the standards, letting me on. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we, us countrymen have to help each other out. So. That's right. <laughs> Fellow Brits abroad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as, as we said, you did the 99 Beers in 99 Weeks um, challenge for yourself where you went through the BJCP book and brewed every single beer um, in that thing over a course of two years. And I think the first question is why? <laughs> i still still trying to figure that one out. Um, the, the initial idea behind this was I was brewing, putting out videos on a, a YouTube channel infrequently, and um, I wanted a little bit of structure. And what I found that I, I was doing was I was just kind of brewing the same old styles that I was used to and that I really liked. So, you know, I like English bitters and uh, Irish stout, Belgian triple, uh, pale ale, that sort of thing. And I was just brewing the same beers over and over again. And then I got hold of the BJCP guidelines and this is you know, a classified list of all these different beer styles and I was just thinking well this is wonderful you know I could just pick from here and then I just got to thinking well how about I do them all and um, then I realized you know if I did one a month which was my original plan it was going to take me a very long time to get through them all <laughs> so how about doing one every week and uh, yeah that's really how it started that's crazy 
Um, and so doing doing that many beers, uh, I mean, obviously the standard size that we brew to is five gallons. Were you doing a full five gallons or were you doing smaller batches? Yeah, so I, I started off uh, with the brewing system that I had, which was a Blickman Brew Easy system, and that was uh, designed for 10 gallon batches. So I started off doing 10 gallons. <laughs> and yeah, that turns out that when you have 10 gallons of beer, so basically two corny kegs of beer every week, it was kind of difficult to get those drained in time for the next video and still be in any sort of shape to make the next video. <laughs> so um, I. I sort of tried to use that system to to just brew five gallons, but it's it's really two kettles the brew easy one that sits on top of the other and they recirculate between the the two, and it didn't work very well once you got to five gallon batches. So I ended up buying um, a brow supply Unibrow, which was a ten gallon kettle, so it brewed five gallon batches, and just started doing five gallon batches in there. I then ended up moving to a, a third system. Um, <laughs> the Clawhammer supply system and that really let me brew three gallon batches quite effectively so I ended up sticking with three gallons after the first few months and I have stuck with three gallon batches ever since yeah. even today I'm you know I finished the 99 challenge I'm still brewing beer I still always brew three gallons because it's enough that you can you know have plenty to try yourself and enough to share um, but it's not so much that it's sitting around, you know, I, I want to get onto the next style and, and try something new. So it's, that's kind of the optimal for me, I think. You know? And and also not getting absolutely bladdered every night, uh, trying to finish that keg so you've got an empty one for the next week. <laughs> In, indeed. And I actually, even though I've made uh, an incredible amount of beer, I guess, if you added it all together, I don't really drink that much beer. I mean, I don't drink seven days a week. So... Um, finding a home for for the beers has sometimes been a challenge. Uh, sometimes not when it's a really good beer, but you know I brewed every style, and there are some styles in there that I absolutely knew going in I would not like, <laughs> and I fully validated myself upon trying them that yes, I did not like that style. And then what do you do with three gallons of this beer that you don't like? So uh, that's been a bit of a challenge too. Well, what was one of the styles? Uh, the, uh, the worst one. Uh, was a smoke beer. It's called a ranch beer. Yeah, a Rausch beer. Rausch. And I, Rausch beer. And I, I just decided that you know it uses smoked malt, and you can use maybe ten percent, twenty percent of the grist would be smoked malt. That would be sort of recommended. Um, but I saw that online that you could go like you know just make the whole thing smoked malt if you wanted. So I got this cherry oak smoked malt. And uh, they sell it in the homebrew store, just in like really small amounts. And I was like, no, 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 I need, I need like ten pounds of this because I'm, I'm brewing a, a Roche beer. And they had to go out back and pull out this sack. And at that point, I realised that nobody else was buying this much smoked malt. Um, and perhaps this was a little over the top. Well, I brewed it um, just on brew day. Normally, the brewery, my little home brewery, smells, you know, like cereal and it's delicious. Mm. It just smelled like. Like a bonfire in there, <laughs> uh, just from the mash. Yeah. And then when it came to taste it, it was like this brown, murky thing, um, and it tasted like you were drinking fire. Oh. Um, not like hot, but you know, just ashy and really smoky. So uh, that's the only beer that, after doing the the tasting on camera uh, with my with my co-taster, 
we then ditched the entire keg. We did not <laughs> drink another sip. It's but, but you know the the smoky beer thing kind of carried on. There's lots of other styles that incorporate smoke, and I, from then on, I was like, right, I need to be much more careful and and, and use much less smoked malt. So you know, let's do a sensible amount, ten percent in the in the recipe and so forth. But never liked it. Yeah, and I think that think I just kind of put off from that. And and even there was one style that was a combination of smoke and sour together. Mm. Uh, so that was a, a really strange one. Um, yeah, just. Didn't like any of the smoky beers. <laughs> I smoked sour. I can't. That that sounds like my worst nightmare. If I'm absolutely honest, not a sour beer fan either. And not a sour. I I I don't mind a very very mild sour. Um, but I've had them where it's, um, like just taking a whole bag of Sour Patch Kids and just like eating them all at once, and it's just too much. It makes my eyes water. Uh, my my brewing friend, um, my brewing partner, he just made a well. It's on the kumquat right now, but he made this sour, and it's been aging for a year. And we took a taste before putting the kumquats in, and it was absolutely delightful. And I'm scared with five pounds of kumquat, it's just now gonna like make your eyes water. So I'm kind of oh excited to see how that turns out. But um, yeah, it's uh, I'm not the world's biggest sour guy. Well, you know, sour beers became a bit of a an issue with the challenge because I was just working my way through the list, and every month I would look at what's ahead, and then I would come up with you know four recipes and send them to the homebrew store to get the ingredients, and I just sort of keep keep going through all of that, and then I got to category twenty three, which is the European <laughs> sour ale category, and then I start looking out some of these these uh, ales, and I'm like, right, I'll put some recipes together for a, for a alambic and uh, flanders red and that's when i started to read in the small print that you you brew these and then you let them sit for a year <laughs> and you know the video is due in two months so <laughs> whoops so i i suddenly realized that i i really should have brewed the sour beers as the very first thing that i did and then i just let let them sit yeah. and then revisit them when i got to the european sour ale category so I did not end up brewing all of the sour beers on the BJCB list. I did do two of them, and they are actually sat in my closet uh, over a year old now, ready for me to try to, oh, to nice. actually package them and do something with them. That's awesome. When you when you started out doing the um, challenge, had you just like sat down and read the entire BJCP list, or were you like, I'm just going to see what comes next? <laughs> No, I had not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd looked at the looked at the first page and sort of hadn't turned it over since then. What I sort of, I guess I should have, you know, if I'd looked at all 99, the most obvious thing is these beers are classified by style. Okay. And they sort of go from, you know, uh, uh, the simple version of the style through to a more complex version of the style as it goes. But what that means is that if you're brewing them in order you're basically brewing beers that are very, very similar to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the first three months or so, I brewed nothing but lagers. Everything was a lager. After that, I didn't brew a single lager for the remainder of the challenge because all the lagers happened to be up front. <laughs> um, and then I would have things like, I got to the Czech lager section. And then, so one week I'm brewing Czech pale lager. And then the next week I'm brewing Czech premium pale lager. <laughs> Like, well, hmm, what's the difference between those two? And uh, you know, I've got to try to try to sort of 
make a completely different video now about what is basically the same beer. <laughs> uh, and then the Scottish beers are like that as well. Basically, yeah. the difference between each of the Scottish beers is just the ABV. Um, each one is a little bit stronger. So you just end up making the same beers over and over a little bit. So yeah, perhaps if I'd read ahead, maybe I would have mixed <laughs> things around a little bit. And then, you know, I didn't do any English beers until I got to category 11, which is the, the British bitter category. Mm-hmm. And then I went on this awesome um, three-month period where I did nothing but British beers. So that was fun. Yeah. But the Belgian beers were right at the end. There's a category... 24 out of the 27 categories so i went nearly two years without brewing a belgian beer and belgian beer is my favorite style so um yeah probably should have mixed them up (laughs) like just like start at start at the end then go to the beginning and just like ping pong back between the two yeah i've seen people um like the mean brews youtube channel they kind of had a a randomizer so he has all the, the styles and then he just runs a random number generator and then gets the number and it's like yeah that's what we're gonna brew this week <laughs> so maybe something like that would have been fun that said um the fact that they that they were all grouped together meant that i was able to sort of refine my technique a little bit mm-hmm. uh, i never brewed the same beer twice so i never really got to like make my favorite american ipa recipe for example because i was always on to the next thing but at least by putting them together like i did a whole bunch of stouts and i could start to see the things that worked in stouts and then continue them into the to the next beer so it was it was good from a learning perspective yeah. from a what's on what's on my tap perspective and i look and every beer is basically a you know a deviation of the other ones it wasn't quite as exciting <laughs> um so when doing this uh you know doing a beer every week what kind of efficiencies like how did you refine your process um from i mean you talked about going from 10 gallons to three uh, but what other efficiencies did you find to like make this easier on yourself? Right. I mean, this, I have become obsessed with all the efficiencies that I could come up with throughout this, like obsessed. Um, so the whole kind of process for a week for me would be come up with a recipe for the next beer, um, brew a recipe for, for a beer that I, I come up with sometime before that, um, edit the uh, footage from the video that's coming out next and then do a tasting for another beer. So there'll be basically sort of four beers going on at once uh, <laughs> just through this weekly process. Plus, you know, cleaning your equipment and, oh, I've got a CO2 leak and all this sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, so I would look at anything I could do to make the process a bit more efficient. And some of that was actually in the brew day itself. I mean, the brew day is the biggest part of all of this. and when I started out, my brew days were mm, four and a half, sometimes even five hours long. Mm-hmm. By the end, I would go from putting in the grains, you know, walking into the brewery, through to leaving with a clean system in two and a half hours. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I would take every shortcut I possibly could. <laughs> and, you know, some of that was like mash time. I, I would always mash for an hour and boil for an hour. And then I started to realize when I was taking pre-boiled gravity readings that often my mash was done much sooner than an hour. So what I end up doing now is I, I mash, and then once I get to my pre-boiled gravity number, I stop mashing. You know, I've, I've reached my target. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is like 30, 40 minutes, uh, as opposed to an hour or sometimes 90 minutes in, in the recipe that I was using. And then boil as well. Um, this might be a bit more controversial, but um, I know a few other people that do this too. I very rarely boil for an hour, even if it's 
Pilsner malt and yeah. brewing a lager and you know people concerned about DMS I almost always brew for 30 minutes and I adapt my recipe just to throw in a few more hops at the bittering stage uh, to account for the shorter boil and I have noticed no difference in quality in, in a 30 minute boil over a 60 minute boil for, for almost every style I've tried that with. That's amazing. Is it because you're using less grain that you can find those efficiencies or is it just you know us as homebrewers being told you do this for an hour and that's just our standard go-to right I, I think it's a bit of that i mean i know you know sites like brewlosophy they look into this and mm -hmm. i've often found so many things turn out to be non-significant um including ball time mash time and so forth yeah um so 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 yeah trying to get things shorter has been like one sort of efficiency that i tried to look at but the other thing was just making things more convenient so for some of the bigger beers where I do need to mash longer just to get the efficiency that I that I want, like if I'm doing a, a, like a Belgian quad or something like that, you know, that's a big beer, it's a lot of grain, 30, 40 minute mash is probably not going to get what I need out of it. So mm -hmm. for beer styles like that, what I've ended up adopting with things like overnight mashes. So I would heat my water up, put the grains in. And then I use an electric brewing system where I can just set the temperature and there's a little heating element that cycles on and off to, to maintain the temperature. So I would put the grains in, uh, set the temperature to 152 Fahrenheit, and then go to bed. <laughs> and then next morning before work, I'm, you know, it's, it's mashed. The mash is done and I can go straight to the boil. So I've effectively split a brew day up into two parts yeah. and skipped really the whole mash thing completely because I didn't have to wait on it. So... Um, yeah, overnight mashes are a big favorite of mine now for, for sort of time saving as well. I love that you're like, yeah, I got my brew day down to two and a half hours. I also figured out how to go and have a sleep. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the other thing is with the timings, I used to obsess about it. You know, if it was a 60 minute mash, I would set the, the phone to say, alert me after 60 minutes and then I am going to go into that room and I'm going to move on to the next stage. I'll go to the bash out or take the greens out, go to the boil, whatever. And it better be on that to the second, to the mm -hmm. 60th minute. Um, and now I'm realizing, well, you know, it really does not need to be that precise. No. So I will start the mash, maybe go out, come back, do a phone call, you know, do some work. If I get caught up in that and I can't get back until seventy fifth minute or something like that, then that's fine as well. So yeah. just being a little uh, less worried about the time. I think with the boil, you do need to know when you're going to start and when you're going to end because of the boil off rate. Mm -hmm. But certainly for the mash, it wasn't as important. So just being a bit more relaxed with that. Um, and then the other thing is like I was super concerned about getting measurements exactly right. You know, down to adding the exact piece of grain to get the you know to get 10 pounds or to to get my hops to the nearest gram yeah and uh i'd measure everything out get it perfect and now you know if, if the recipe calls for three quarters of an ounce of something i'll just kind of eyeball it throw it in and, yeah uh, it, i can't tell the difference so well it, it's funny because i was um paul crowder who's on an episode we, we were having this discussion over homebrewers like a lot of homebrewers love being precise and it's something that a certain section of homebrewers just agonize over like the precision 
Um, but any time I've brewed with like a professional brewery, like they've let me go in and play brewer for the day, like every head brewer is like, eh, it doesn't matter if you're a degree off in your water, and it doesn't matter if we're not exactly 55 pounds. They're so laissez-faire with it. And I think, you know, having done that, I'm I'm now like you. I'm eyeballing my, like, three quarters of an ounce of hops. Like, I'm not measuring it because you don't need the stress. You're just there to enjoy the hobby and make something delicious. Exactly. And, and I, But I think it's also, when you're starting out with something, you, you really want to follow the instructions because you, you want to make sure you get it right. But once yep. you get a bit more experience, you start to learn about the things that don't matter and the things that do matter. So... Yeah, if you don't get that the number of hops in, I mean, I don't know what my hop utilization exactly is for my system anyway. So I don't know if I should have been adding one ounce or one point one ounces in. So I'm not yeah. going to worry about it. Whereas some other things definitely do matter. You know, it is important that I sanitize my equipment. Well, properly. yeah, that that is you the know, important step. Right, and and don't throw in the yeast if it's too hot for the yeast. You know, if it's 85 Fahrenheit and you're like, oh, I can't be bothered to cool it the rest of the way. Well. Sure, let it cool to room temperature by itself, but don't put your yeast in yet. Yeah. So, so it's just learning which bits matters and which, which which bits really don't. Yeah. No, there's there's nothing wrong with leaving your wort overnight to get down to room temperature and then pitching the yeast, as long as it's sanitized and wasn't like a hundred degrees going into the the fermenter. You're fine. Yeah, that, that's a, that's another one of my favorites. Actually, is the uh, if I I brewed a few beers on the road. Like I went to a campsite and I got an RV campsite spot and I plugged in my electric brewing system into that, but I had no way to chill the wort, so I just put it into a keg pot and brought it home and then you know let it cool by itself. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. That, was, that again, that's totally fine. I mean, you want to make sure that the the beer is not exposed to oxygen and and it's not exposed to things that could get in there and start fermentation early. But as long as you're sort of fairly careful, then you can let that walk. Yeah chill by itself and then add the yeast when you're ready yeah so with the with going through um the entire book um were you using other people's recipes or was every single one your own original recipe and how did you approach creating those yeah so everyone was my own recipe um and in fact in the end my recipes ended up going to the homebrew store that I was working with, Atlantic Brew Supply, um, and they would give me ingredients in exchange for my recipes. So I was effectively awesome. selling my recipes, which is nuts to me because <laughs> I have no background in recipe design whatsoever. Yeah. And the way that I'd come up with most of the recipes was really through just, you know, Googling about the style, seeing what's common with the style. There's certain parameters that the style needs to meet for gravity and for IBUs and for color and that sort of stuff. So making sure you're within, within those areas. And then try to pick ingredients that are somewhat native to the style. Um, you know, I started off putting Maris Otter in a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have been just because I like Maris Otter. <laughs> uh, so a lot of my like early lagers had Maris Otter and probably didn't really belong there. So I, I, I ended up, you know, learning that if I'm brewing a German lager, let's use some German ingredients. Mm -hmm. But then it was just really trial and error. So just knowing the, the sort of things that I like, I would tailor my recipes to my own preferences a little bit, but just trying to s stick within within the guidelines more or less. And, you, you know, I was listening to your, your uh, podcast with Danny Khan, and he was talking about how he was building a recipe for his wife's birthday and how he'd gone through 12 different iterations yeah. of that recipe to get it just so 
I've never brewed any of these beers more than once. And it, it just reminded me, my wife's birthday is coming up and she's like, I want a beer. And she had a very specific beer style that she wanted. She wanted it to be a, a nitro porter with a bit of chocolate and cherry flavor. Ooh. And I did not do 12 iterations of that recipe. I just like <laughs> Googled a few things like, oh yeah, cocoa nibs, that sounds like a good idea. Mm. Let's add some some cherry flavor in there. Sure, let's put some of that in, and that's the recipe, you know. And, yeah. and I will never brew it again, but hopefully it'll work out okay. <laughs> so I am not going through this iterative process to really refine the ingredients. These are just kind of first tries. But honestly, I, I've surprised myself at how often they they've ended up really sort of hitting the mark. Yeah, and uh, quite happy with them. No, because I'm, I'm kind of the same way. There's only been one beer that I've done different iterations of, um, and it's a beer that I use Earl Grey in. And honestly, the biggest changes I was making was what type of Earl Grey I was using. Like, that was, that was my big, like, experimentation with that. But my thing has always been if i brew a beer and i really like it i'm not going to change anything about it i'm just going to brew that recipe again because um, yeah. if i brew a beer that i think is fine i'm gonna move on to the next recipe and and see you know what i want to do with that one instead um but yeah denny is he is meticulous with his uh iterations and but you know that's partly why he's so good and wonderful to listen to on on experimental brewing so well, 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 exactly. And, you know, it's, but to go back to what you're saying there, um, once you do get something that you like, I think you can sort of, even if you're not brewing that same thing again, you can sort of use the basis of that yep. for other beers. So I really like English porters and I have an English porter recipe now that I'm very happy with. And anytime I brew any sort of porter, I always use the English porter uh, as the base yep. for that. And then, yeah, you know, maybe I'll change the hops, maybe I'll change the yeast, but I have this base for a porter now all my porters are going to use it so yeah, yeah there's definitely some aspect to that where you you can sort of build up some favorite aspects and just keep keep reusing them yeah i've got two base beers i use that i love because they stand up to so much abuse in experimenting of like, oh i really like this blonde ale what happens now if i throw in random ingredients into that and see and like you can and like to your point, yeah, like, oh, okay, I like this flavor, but it would go really great in a stout rather than right. this poor Blondale right. I've just abused again. So <laughs> obviously brewing to style, you're putting this huge limitation on yourself that you can't necessarily um, go too wild with the recipe because then you're out of style. Now you don't have that. Are you like, again, just way more relaxed with your recipe builds and it doesn't have to hit the porter uh, specifics? Or is that now more ingrained in you that you're trying to constantly hit style? That's such a good question because as I was going through this, you know, you get like a year in and you've got another year of beers ahead of you and they're all very defined styles and you know that if you don't do it within the defined style, people are going to tell you, people are going to tell you in the YouTube comments that that's not right. So about halfway through, I was just starting to create a list of beers that I wanted to do that were not in this list of 99. And, you know, not even necessarily real styles, but just sort of ideas I had for, for what would make a, a good beer. Um, so once I got done with the 99, that is what I did. Like just recently, I've put together a recipe for what I think is like a, a 
Belgian single kind of Trappist single style beer, but it's not really. I mean, it's just got stuff in it that I like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's been really fun to go to town with that. Um, but at the same time, I am now so much more aware of, of what sort of the accepted standards are that I think it has crept into the recipes I'm brewing even now. Even yeah. I, I'll still try to make sure that I'm within the right SRM and the right IBU of a, a beer, even if it's not really of that style. Um, yeah, it, it's changed me. It's definitely changed <laughs> me to, to be a little bit more conventional, even when I'm trying not to be. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, as someone who has probably brewed the most amount of styles in the world now um <laughs> going through the whole thing <laughs> there there are people at the uh aha who have not brewed as many as you have um what beer are you gonna add to the tap list yeah this is this is such a good question i, I have a few to pick from and i nearly nearly picked the english best bitter mm-hmm. because that is a style i have revisited a few times it's my dad's favorite beer style like ringwood best bitter has uh, been his favorite beer style and i've tried a few clone recipes for that i've got one that i really like now that just has a touch of chocolate malt in it which Ooh. is really goes against style but ringwood best does have a little bit of chocolate malt in it too so it was nearly that one but actually the beer i'd like to use predates my 99 beer challenge and it's a clone mm-hmm. so a clone of a of a Guinness, basically, an Irish dry stout recipe. Nice. Um, and I've always, Guinness has always been one of my favorite beers, and especially when it's served on nitro, and you can really do a pretty good one at home. But I never could quite get that that little twang that you get from a, a real Guinness with my homebrewed stuff. It was like Irish dry stout, but it wasn't Guinness. Mm-hmm. And then I found a process that I think works which is that you take a little bit of the wort from the brew day and before you add the yeast to it you set it aside uh, you put it in just you know, a container like a flask or something cover it up with wrap and you just let it sit out at room temperature for a couple of days at which point it starts to sour because it's just exposed to wild yeast in the air and whatnot and then you boil it to kill off what was ever in there and then you add it into the the beer itself and it's just a tiny portion of the total amount of wort Mm -hmm. but that just adds a little touch of sourness and then absolutely tasted to me like a proper guinness (laughs) with that guinness twang so that's the one i wanted to to to, you know put that's amazing when when you say a little bit like are you just talking like a pint um or right yeah. yeah it was just have basically have much I could fit in my Erlenmeyer flask, yeah. Um, and so yeah, pretty percentage wise, we're talking you know a few percent of the total work, yeah. But it, just enough to uh, to make a difference. And I was so worried doing it because I knew that my Irish stout was going to be good, mm-hmm. but I was like, am I just ruining a five gallon <laughs> batch here by putting in this work that's been sat out, you know, on the side for for a few days? Yeah. But it just made it perfect. So oh, that, that's, that's what I'd recommend anyone give give it a try. And then like so when you're when you're adding it because you you've taken it out you've boiled it, uh, that the rest of the world uh, I assume is fermenting fermented, fermented. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you're 
you're basically spiking your already perfectly good finished beer <laughs> with an infection with, with, with an infected <laughs> deliberately infected beer it that's works a... <laughs> somehow it works that's amazing um and uh Martin has shared the recipe with us, so we'll be putting it into the show notes so you can brew and drink along with us. But that's incredible, and I'm not going to lie that... Because I've heard the rumors of like the adding a little bit of sour beer to, to Guinness. I kind of want to try it, but like you just said, like, am I ruining a perfectly sessionable uh, dry Irish stout by like throwing in a soured beer <laughs> into it. Well, I think I think we need to find out. So yeah. um, we we need more people to try it and let us know. All right, I I will um, I will one of these days try it because <laughs> I I am absolutely a Guinness drinker. If it's on yeah. tap, it's hard for me to like. My my instinct is always to go for the, like the craft beer, but if they've got Guinness on nitro, it's very hard for me to like turn it down. It absolutely is, but you know Guinness is just one of those beers that. It tastes so different depending upon the tap setup that they have. Yeah. Even if it's nitro. And I mean, I, I went to Dublin and people would say, oh, the Guinness tastes different in Dublin. And it does, but mm-hmm. it tastes different in each bar that I went to in Dublin. You know, even in a, like a block, you go to several different bars and it, it would taste noticeably different in each one. So yeah. it, it, it definitely is a very difficult beer, I think, to maintain and to get the temp, to, to just get that taste right. Um, so if you can do that and do it at home and maybe mm-hmm. i just got lucky with this souring <laughs> beer thing but for me it was just like oh this is an eye opener wow i can actually have the real thing that's amazing that has. i i've got to ask so um because when i talk with like craft beer fans in in colorado um obviously we are a big craft beer state and you say like your favorite beer is guinness there's a little bit of an eye roll like that's big beer it's it's guinness but I don't know that you would get that in the UK. And I think part of it is like for a lot of us, it is one of the first beers that we drink and gravitate to when we're able to pass for 18 in the pub. Like, would you say that's the same thing or do I just know very no, snobby I, people? <laughs> no, that's, that's right. Yeah, obviously, yeah. You want to say some, some barrel-aged sour is your favorite beer from some brewery that you've never heard of, right? Yeah. Guinness. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic because... I, I I wouldn't say I'm a craft beer snob at all. You know, I do enjoy all sorts of beers, mm-hmm. the macro beers as well. But uh, but I definitely do enjoy the craft beers, and there's so many breweries in, in the U.S. and I mean Raleigh, and I, there's so many here as well. But when I was in England, you know, I was a lot younger then. I used to drink European lagers yep. and Budweiser. <laughs> Those are my drinks. Like if I would go go out somewhere with friends, I'd probably We'd probably order bottles of Budweiser. Yeah. And now I won't touch the stuff in the US. And when I go back to England, I'm like, oh, wow, all these real ales and the beer engines, this is fantastic. Um, so I'll go for that. But I would never touch that in England. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's the stuff that you, you know, when, when, I, when Budweiser was like, that's the import beer, then I, I kind of liked it. And now it's just, you know, the cheap supermarket beer over here. I, I won't go near it. And exactly the opposite has happened with the, the real ales. Now yeah. it's difficult to get them. I absolutely love them. So <laughs> it probably says more about me than it does the drinks. Yeah. Um, so on, on the flip side then of, of making the Guinness, uh, is the Roush beer the worst beer you've ever made, or is there another one in in the back catalogue that you're like, I'm never doing this again? There's a lot of beers that I will never do again. <laughs> 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 to be honest, 
the Rausch beer though absolutely stands out as just just I mean it's the only one that is completely undrinkable you know I've had beers that I don't really like them or sometimes you know you drink a glass and at first it's quite shocking because there's something in the flavor profile that you didn't expect I've had like bacon beer and stuff yeah, like that oof. it's like oh oh that's a bit much um or you mentioned sour beers you know really a really sort of sharp sour beer as well can be quite difficult but as you drink more of it, often you sort of think, you know, it's not so bad. You get kind of used to it. That smoked beer, it just, no. <laughs> the more you drank, the smokier and ashier it got in your mouth. So yeah, that, that will always stand out as the one that I just could not drink. But I think, yeah, most of the other stars, I think you can normally learn to appreciate them. Uh, it's just when you start adding weird stuff in that it's a pro- it can be a problem. So, you know, when you start adding in ghost peppers and weird fruits and mm. stuff like that you know sometimes it just completely overtakes the recipe it doesn't taste like beer at all anymore it just tastes like that thing that's gone in it yeah so that's that stuff i try to absolutely avoid but you know if, if it's basically a barley based beer um with hops and yeast and not too much of the weird stuff in there i don't think there's too many different versions of that that i'm not going to enjoy yeah um have you ever gone to like the gabf um or like big beer festivals i have not uh well i've been we have um we have quite a lot of beer festivals here in raleigh um so we have a world beer festival in Mm -hmm. raleigh and durham each year and there's a bunch of other derivatives like that that's so fun it's so fun you know there's so many different breweries to try and Mm -hmm. so many different beer styles i love those because one year we went to the GABF and my friend and i just decided to try and drink all the weird beers we could and probably one of my least enjoyable GABF experiences because it's like there's only so many bacon beers you can drink before you're like why am i doing this to myself the bacon beers are, yeah it's just i think you know i think that goes on to the smoky thing again yeah it's that does not belong in beer it is i'm sorry 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 fans of bacon beer it does not belong in beer i i also have the same thing with peanut butter beer like peanut butter does not but i don't eat peanut butter at the best of times so like it just doesn't belong in beer to me peanut butter does not want to go in beer that's the problem i tried to brew a peanut butter stout and i bought because you can't just really put peanuts peanut butter directly in the beer because it's oily and you know yep. oil and water don't really mix too well so uh, there's this dried version of peanut butter you can get called pb2 mm-hmm. and i put pounds of this stuff into a, a beer and it just falls out and the beer tasted quite peanutty or moderately peanutty for a day or two and you know, a couple of weeks later you wouldn't even know you'd put it in there yeah. so uh, peanuts do not want to be part of beer which I, I guess for you is probably a good thing <laughs> i think so yeah I, I mean i like peanuts i like beer i like keeping them separate it's a good thing right <laughs> you could say that about so many things you really could <laughs> So as we sit here in the homebrew pub, the only pub on an ethereal plane where every tap is by a homebrewer and magically transforms into your perfect brew pub. What is your perfect brew pub and what would it be called? So, I mean, in in terms of the name, I have my own little fake homebrewery name. So I'll probably call it after that, Saints and Devils Brewing. Um, Saints and Devils referring to two English soccer teams. So (laughs) Saints for the mighty Southampton and uh, devils for a team in manchester that we shall not mention mm. but my uh, my friend like them so 
we came up with that name. So I have this uh, little little yeah brew. So it would be the tap room for saints and devils. In terms of what the the tap room itself would look like, it would look like like a regular U.S. tap room, you know, quite modern, with lots of flights because I just love you know little flight yeah. glasses. So it would be like a regular tap room, except it would have fantastic lighting and cameras mounted everywhere so that I could film my videos in there. <laughs> you want to live in the Big began. Brother house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be so perfect. No privacy. Sorry, you guys have to sign a waiver when you come in. But I want cameras and microphones everywhere so I could be capturing video content. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, everyone, please come down to the Saints and Sinners Big Brother house. Uh, grab a flight of everything we got on tap and come and have a drink with me and Martin. And uh, turn over all privacy rights. But, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be on camera, sorry. And, and, and be on Martin's YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> want to say a huge thank you to Martin Keane for coming on and and talking about perhaps to me the most insane brewing challenge you can do please do go check out his videos um, the homebrew challenge I'll be linking to that in the show notes along with the recipe for the Guinness Stout and of course thank you so much for listening if you could leave us a five star review wherever it is you get your podcast that'll just help other people find the show if you want to reach out to us possibly come on and share a pint with me you can reach us at our website thehomebrewpub.com or email landlord at thehomebrewpub.com or on social at thehomebrewpub on Instagram and Twitter and if like me you hate those annoying ads well we've got to keep the lights on here at the homebrew pub somehow so consider joining our Patreon and becoming a mug club member for $3 a month you'll get access to ad free versions of the episodes but until then grab your favorite pint put your feet up relax don't worry and have a homebrew till next time cheers Cheers.